Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. My name is Hal Bryan. I'm Senior Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications at EAA. I'm one of your hosts. Here on my left is... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And across the table, uh, where we normally find Tom Charpentier and his litany of sick beats, uh, <laughs> we've got Connor Madison. Connor, Hello. Hi. Yeah, I'm the staff photographer here at EA, and I th- I think I'm the self-proclaimed uh, biggest fan of the Green Dot. So <laughs> self-proclaimed <laughs> yes, biggest yeah. fan. Yeah, I'm, all your all your I'm, wildest dreams are coming true. Yeah, this, right now. This You're is making my day to be here. And it's not just the uh, three of us. Chris, why don't you uh, introduce our guest? Well, absolutely. Uh, we're very honored to have with us today, uh, longtime uh, aviator, uh, NASA flight director. Uh, Kip Plains uh, magazine editor. I don't know if there's anything else I can't throw in there. Uh, Paul Dye uh, made the trip out to hang out with us today. Paul, thank you for being oh, here. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Pleased to hear, be here. Thanks. Now, as we're uh, recording this, of course, the air date will be some uh, sometime in the murky and distant future. But as we're recording this, uh, we're getting ready for Paul to speak uh, tonight, Thursday night, April 19th in the uh, museum. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Excellent. Sounds like it'll be fun. So by the time this airs, then uh, you'll have heard how it went. Yeah, yeah, it should be in, probably be in the papers and everything, you know. <laughs> exactly. Who knows what uh, what uh, incidents they'll be talking That's about? True. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Right. Excellent. They'll be referred to as the Paul Dye incident. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> Henceforth. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much again, as Chris said, for taking time to join us for coming out. Uh, you bet. And uh, um, and and certainly also for everything you do for uh, for EAA. We uh, I think we have a great partnership. Uh, uh, with you on as a personal and professional level, you're on our home build aircraft council. Yeah, I'm correct? on the council, and it works out really well. And um, and uh, we have a great uh, great time, a fun time putting together Kit Plains magazine. And uh, and people often ask me, you know, so how's the competition at Sport Aviation? And I say, you know, we really don't compete. We actually cooperate pretty well. I really enjoy uh, enjoy reading it, and uh, and uh, every month when it comes in. Well, and likewise, I'm a longtime Kit Plains subscriber, and. I've often maintained that uh, that really, for the most part, our little world of aviation is too small to worry about. <laughs> yeah, that, that's about really trying true. to compete with we each other. We all need to work with each other to make this happen. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, um, let's uh, let's start back at uh, at the beginning. Uh, maybe not you know earth cooled and all that uh, <laughs> right. that far the back. Dinosaurs but, came. Yes, yes, the dinosaurs right. came. Uh, uh, Mercedes Benzes. We, we all watch the same movies. <laughs> we, <don't> we? <laughs> we absolutely do. <laughs> anyway. Uh, what was your first exposure to the uh, to the world of aviation? Was it aviation first and then space, or the other way around? It, no, it was aviation. My my mother tells a story which I believe is probably apocryphal that that uh, uh, that the first word I ever said, I looked up at the sky, pointed at something, and said "air poo." Uh, but um, I, I almost hope that's not true. But uh, I was growing up as a kid in uh, in Bemidji, Minnesota, and I remember going up there. Uh, to the out to the airport to pick up my dad uh, you know I must have been three or four we went out to pick him up he was flying in and what I now know it must have been a DC-3 that was wow. uh, you know going to the Twin Cities to catch a flight somewhere else and I just remember this this long straight road with big tall pine trees on either side and this rotating beacon up in the front and uh, and I thought that was the most mystical thing in the world it was really interesting so my love of aviation goes way back uh, anything that that flew I remember watching whirly birds and oh, Sky yep. King on on TV I don't remember them well but but the <laughs> earliest memories out of the clear blue of the western sky you got it that's right <laughs> yes. that's right 
That is excellent. When did you uh, when did you first sort of get hands on and start learning to fly? Well, on I was uh, I was of course a U control modeler, and I flew model rockets in elementary school and junior high school, and then. Um, about the time where I would have finally had enough money scraped together to get into radio control, um, a local fixed base operator and the 3M Aviation Club, uh, which was in the Twin Cities, um, got together to, to, to sponsor an Explorer post. And I was 13, and the, the FBO had bought two wrecked L4s, literally in, from a chicken coop. I mean, <laughs> I saw pictures of it. Wow. And what we did as, an, as Explorer Scouts was uh, we went out uh, two nights a week and re rebuilt those airplanes. And once we got, uh, got the first one flying, uh, we were given uh, flight time. For every two hours you worked, you got an hour of flight time uh, for gas and oil, which was four and a half bucks an hour. Wow. And he had an instructor that was a you know part-time instructor who was a uh, um, middle school principal, who uh, really believed in us, and so he he charged five bucks an hour. Man. So I got my private license for I think uh, five hundred dollars. Uh, that's wow. in, that's incredible. I mean, even when you start adjusting for inflation, but it, that, it was pretty neat. Yeah, working two hours for an hour of flight time really is that was pretty. That, good. That's a deal that was in, in any yeah. era, no matter yeah. what the dollars so, actually. So that was be. this started when I was thirteen. Of course, I soloed at sixteen and uh, and uh, was licensed to my private at seventeen as soon as I could get it. That's. That's absolutely terrific. Uh, so, any, flying anything else about that time other than the L fours? Or uh, you know, we um, became a hangar rat, obviously. So uh, it was anything that we could catch a ride in that came through. Um, most of the most of the typical GA private airplanes I had had a chance to fly before I had even soloed, um, and uh, some round engine stuff and things like that. So it was it was pretty neat uh, neat childhood. Excellent. Now, did you always know that you you had a, an idea that you wanted to go work at NASA or in a space program? Well, that's or? a really good question. Um, I don't think I ever really thought that I was going to go to work for NASA. My real intent was to be in the airplane business, and, and I didn't know what that meant either. I mean, I grew up reading 30 Seconds Over Tokyo and, and all sorts of things like, you know, the, 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 the great books and, um, of aviation in the 60s. And um, my intent, quite honestly, I went to the University of Minnesota for an aeronautical engineering degree, and I figured I'd just uh, go to work up the, up the road in Alexandria, Minnesota, for Balanca. And during my junior year of college, I heard that they'd gone bankrupt. Now, at the time, I didn't know that that's just part of the aviation business. You know, you, you, you have bad times, and you have good times, and you come back, and you go down, and you come back and go down. And uh, one of our, uh, one of our uh, professors had this sheet that he— Pass, they put down at the beginning of the class and said, NASA's looking for some kind of interns. And uh, I thought, well, i got nothing else to lose. Let's see what it's about. So I applied and ended up. And the funny part of your question is that people always say, well, you know, we always knew you were going to work for NASA because you were flying model rockets and you knew all about all the Apollo missions and the Gemini missions and everything. But that, that was not my intent. I, it just worked out that way. And about what year did you start with NASA? So just uh, well, I started out as a co-op student in 1980. Okay. Yep. Yep. And uh, spent uh, that made my senior year two years long. You know, you you work for a quarter, you 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 go back to school for a quarter, right. and so on and so forth. I think mine was six. So. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And, and I've got yeah. nothing to show for it. Nothing at all. <laughs> nothing yeah. Whatsoever. Uh, it, well, the funny part about it is, you know, in engineering, you you don't learn engineering in school. You really don't. You 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 pick up a lot of tools and and learn a little bit about thinking critically. 
and then you learn engineering on the job. So, so I highly recommend a co-op program or an internship to any, any engineering students. And that's when I got out, NASA offered me the full-time job. And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Excellent. That's great. So with your job as being flight director at NASA, what, what would you say there's one detail that, that kind of has gone under the radar, some, a detail about the job that most people wouldn't expect? Wow, that's a good question. There's so many things that probably people don't understand about it. Um, first off, being the flight director is a pretty visible job, a pretty visible position. We like to kind of describe, you know, this pyramid um, where you've got this flight director sitting at the pinnacle of the pyramid and you've got all the front, front room flight controllers and the back room flight controllers and all the engineering people. And this thing becomes, you know, 100,000 people at the bottom in the, air, in the aerospace industry. Now, that's pretty egocentric. So the real truth is that above us, Although we have real full real-time authority of the program managers and the NASA administrator and the Congress and the thing. So there's this inverted pyramid that's sitting on top of us. And you know where the flight director lives is right there at the point of maximum pressure. Right? And, um, and that, that's, that's probably something people don't know about the job. So maybe you can expand on that just a little bit more. And uh, so we, we sort of understand where you are. Can you... Um, can you give us a sense of just how you would define the actual role of a flight director or yeah. roles on a typical mission? <clears throat> you know, to pilots, I like to liken it as we're, we're kind of the ultimate pilot in command. Um, and, and we have that authority during, during real-time operations. The flight director has the authority to make any decision he or she feels necessary for the safe and successful completion of the mission. Now, if, if the crew is out of contact with us, then obviously the commander is the final authority. Uh, but... Um, the flight director is responsible for planning a mission, training for the mission, training everybody for the mission, conducting the mission, and then dealing with the fallout afterwards. Uh, hopefully that's, a, that's parties and successful slaps on the back, you know, most of the time it is. Um, so uh, the, the easiest way that we used to describe it is if you saw the movie Apollo 13, you know, the guy in a white vest and the crew cut, Gene Kranz, that's, that was our job. Middle of the room, conductor of the orchestra. It was a great, uh, great place to be. All right. So now, when you started in 1980, that was uh, what is that? Five years after Apollo Soyuz. Yeah, five that, years 75? after Apollo Soyuz. Yeah. So, and Apollo Soyuz, I have vague memories of that as a kid. Right. And and it certainly wasn't long before that that uh, the then Soviet Union was our our number one rival. Was our, right. you know, was the absolute adversary in the Cold War. 1957 we've got Sputnik going overhead and mm -hmm. and the western world is in a panic and and we've kicked off the true space race and the Soviets were ahead for a pretty significant piece of that um what was the uh after Apollo Soyuz um did that kick off the sort of the cooperation that you would have seen in the 80s or was that more of a one-shot thing and then when when you came in and, and eventually started working with the Soviets did you have to really build that up kind of from scratch? Pretty much when I got there, I don't think we did had any discussions about Russians at all really? uh, until we started working with them. It was really the, the, uh, the, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union in the early 90s. Um, and so I really don't, don't think there was any discussion. We'd won the space race. That, was, right. that wasn't an issue anymore. Interesting. Yeah. So – uh, we were talking a little bit right before we started about uh, uh, made an offhand comment about the Soviet space shuttle program, the Buran. Right. Yep. Um, I, I, 
I'm struggling to recall exactly sort of what era that was. I think it would have been during your, your it was time it was during the time and and you know we were aware of what they were doing but but it wasn't you know they they flew the Buran once unmanned right. it did a it did a once around and landed and and um, depending upon what sources you believe they they had a great flight or they bent the airframe uh, one of the two but uh, they were they were out of money um, right. and 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 that was we kind of we kind of bankrupted them. I just wondered what you know what the reaction is. From, from people who are working on our program to, the, to see that. Because certainly to the layperson, it looks like, okay, well, they saw ours, they took a couple of pictures, and they, well, it, and they, they made the took more than a thing. couple of pictures. You have, <laughs> right. to, you have to remember that the space shuttle program was not a classified program. Uh, oh, that's fair. And so the material is readily available. And, and when I looked and crawled through a Baran in the early 90s, there were, there were, Let's put it this way: There were doubler plates that matched the doubler plates we had in ours. Really? Yes. And you know, you you'd think that if you were redesigning or build, designing something that kind of looked sort of like that, you'd just kind of design the thickness in. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, there were, there were there were some pretty direct copying. So it there. was as direct as as it superficially yes. appears to be. Yeah. I've always wondered yeah. about Except that. Except for the back end. Except oh, sure. Because yeah. you can always look at something like that and say, well, you know what? You were using technology at the same level to solve the same problems. Right. You know, naturally, but, but you know, when I'm building, when I'm building aer- home builds these days, uh, if I can steal something from somebody else rather than redesign it, I'm going to do that. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we exactly. use stuff over all the time. Yeah. So uh, what was your what was it like walking into that mission control room for the first time? It was it was an amazing experience. Of course, it was something I watched on TV. And my, my, my father was the mathematics coordinator for the Minnesota State Department of Education. So in the 60s, he was on the mailing list for everything that came out from NASA. And I had a file drawer of every mission report that was released publicly. So, yeah, I did grow up with a program. I was a co-op student. I was at my desk. We were working on, I was working on assignments, uh, drawing, doing some drawings. And uh, my mentor said, hey, I need to run over to the control center and, and, uh, and talk to somebody. Why don't you come along? And so we went over and we wandered into the back room and ch- chatted with somebody who was doing a simulation. And then we swung by the front room and we opened the door. It was like a Catholic walking into St. Peter's Basilica for the first oh. time. It was, it was this chill that ran through my my whole body that this was this was the place now the first you get two impressions of it the first is that it's really quiet in there because everybody is wearing a headset and while they're talking to people all over the globe you just talk kind of softly and and so it's a very quiet room there's it's carpeted and and uh, if, if you can hear a lot of buzz and hum either either nothing's happening and they're getting ready to sim or or it's real pandemonium which it shouldn't be uh, the the other impression you get is that the room is nowhere near as big as you thought it was going to be because we uh, we always have you always see it shot with a wide angle lens and my photographer host <laughs> sure. will understand yep. it and that mm-hmm. makes the room look bigger but that way you got all the corners of the room so you're saying we can't trust people like Connor is no that, that's, no, the, they, that's the subtext it, it, here it's fake it's it's all fake photography I knew yeah. it it's all Photoshop it's, it's all, all Photoshop, Photoshop. Yeah. Yeah. even before Photoshop NASA it, probably stole Photoshop from aliens prob- yes. before we had it most as a likely product. but I can't talk anymore about that uh, yeah well that's all, all the, the time we well, have well we have emails coming now We'll come back to the alien question yes, in a moment, right, Paul, right. but I know Chris has some more. So I have to ask if you'll tell the Deke story that you told me yesterday. That was a cool story. Oh, well. So yeah, have to remember, I, uh, I bought uh, – shortly after I got to Houston as a permanent employee, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment and, you know, eating, top, uh, eating ramen and frozen pizzas. But I did buy an airplane, and I had this beat-up old Yankee that I was given 
for a really good deal on by some friends. And I was working in my hangar one night trying to do some work on it. Uh, and it was, you know, 10 o'clock at night because that's when you work in Houston at the night because it's, it's cooled off. And from around the corner comes Deke Slayton, and his hangar was right behind my, me. And, and he was carrying this fiberglass intake off of his Formula One racer saying, hey, Paul, I'm trying to figure out, you know, if you think that this radius is okay? Or and I don't remember the details. And, and it was really funny because I'm just standing here working on it, and, and my first thought is, Deke Slayton's asking me. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, we're just a couple of pilots out here just having a good time working on our airplanes at night. It was really, really fun. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And, and yet, uh, what, <laughs> 25 years or something before that, 25, 30 years uh, yeah. before that? You know, he was. He's on the on cover, cover of Life, Ma- cover Life, Life magazine. magazine. Right? Yeah, that's right. The original Mercury yep. 7. Yep. Oh, that's, that is incredible. Sure. So I think we're, we're all aware of your. Um, your experience building RVs. Um, yeah. So, wondering, look, do you have a project that you're working on right now? Well, uh, yeah, I'm trying to finish my workshop so I can uh, so I can unbox the project that I'm working on. Um, but uh, we're actually working on a Xenos motor glider, my wife and I, right now. Oh, neat. Um, I was up here a couple years ago flying uh, so all the Sonics airplanes in, uh, as the magazine editor, and I hadn't flown any of the Sonics's, and so Joe Norris was still over there, and and he said, "Well, let's take this up." So we took that, and let's take this up. Let's go. And then he said, "Let's roll this this ro- roll this long wing thing out of here." And it was like taxi in a U two. It was really fun. <laughs> and um, and I live literally over the hill, an eight minute flight from Minden, which is one of the soaring capitals of the country. Oh, sure. And it was like, and my wife said, "Well, maybe we need a motor glider." So we decided to build the Xenos, and uh, we've been waiting for this workshop project to get done so we can lay the wings out. We're just all we really have to build is the wings at this point, and they're big, long, long wings. Um, and so I don't, I didn't want to jig them and then move them and then rejig them. So, uh, so that's the project we're working on right now. That's great. So, what else have you built over uh, over the years? Well, let's see. Uh, the RV8 was the the first one that I built from a kit. Um, you know, I rebuilt. Cubs and and uh, and uh, worked on my uh, my uh, Yankee a lot, and then uh, my wife and I built an RV three, um, and uh, it's it's kind of really my favorite airplane, uh, just to, all around airplane, and I can I can hop in that in my home out near uh, Carson City, Nevada, near Tahoe, and uh, comfortably sit in it in its contoured seat, and eight hours later, when one, two fill stops, be here in Oshkosh. Isn't so that's a great and and the best thing the best thing about a single seat airplane is the quality of the social experience. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just it's just wonderful. And then uh, and then we recently about two years ago uh, we finished up a Dream Tundra, which is a a big hulking uh, four seat uh, metal bush plane, and we've been flying that around the back country of uh, of uh, Nevada and uh, and uh, up to Idaho and places like that. So uh, that's what we've built uh, so far. So. Let me ask you this. You've got the, the background in engineering and, of course, the, the long and distinguished career at NASA. Um, are you a fun person to work on an airplane with? <laughs> or, uh, or is it, uh, uh, is it program ask, management all the way? I think you'd have up? to ask my wife, you know, probably. <laughs> well, we've got a surprise yeah. for you because <laughs> she is. Oh, I wish. Uh, you know, I, um, the, the, I'm pretty focused when you're working on an airplane, you kind of have to be because if you if you got helpers, you need to make sure that they don't distract you from critical tasks. 
and it's really great to have uh, experienced helpers to work on things. So uh, I'd like to think that the, that the, uh, that the workshop's fun, uh, but you'd have to ask someone else to find out that, uh, the real truth. Meant with all due respect, yeah. just to be clear. Well, and it, was it your love of home building that led you to Kit Planes as well, to doing the magazine? Well, I tell you what. I think, you know, I got a subscription to Flying Magazine when I was probably – 13 years old. So I've been reading Flying Magazine and other magazines for, for all that time. And I, I think I always had this little this little thought in the back of my mind that wouldn't it be neat to be one of these great famous uh, um, uh, magazine writers, you know, who gets to go fly airplanes and make all this money and all that kind of cool stuff. And about five years before I retired, I got a call from the editor-in-chief of Kit Planes who'd seen writing I'd done on the web and um, and asked if I'd start writing for the magazine. I said, what do you want? And he said, you can do anything you want. You can have a column, you can do features, you can do flight reviews, whatever you want, I want you. And so, yeah, it it it, it all kind of blended in together. And, and I did find out that, you know, when you get to be a, a neat magazine writer, you know, you get to fly all these really cool airplanes. The money thing, that doesn't work out quite that way. You're not going to get rich. Nobody gets rich writing. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't only work for a nonprofit. I uh, I moved from the sort of the world of social media uh, into the uh, the bright future of print journalism myself. Ah, so, yes, right. Senior <laughs> you editor here. You understand that, yes. but uh, uh, absolutely. But uh, no, I kid. Couldn't be happier. And uh, boy, the chance to get and go to go fly some things. Have you flown the the chipper yet? The light chipper. Uh, I did not fly the chipper. I was busy flying something else that I can't uh, talk about yet. Ooh, and so I had another guy go fly the chipper. But uh, I've sat in it. It's an interesting little airplane. Yeah, I had a lot of a lot of fun with that one. I knew we had both covered it around the same time. Right. So right. Unfortunately. Your your story wasn't published in time for me to copy from it, so I had to write my own. Well, you see, so you know, we, we are we yeah we we are a feature magazine. I tell everybody six months is the quickest I can work on. Yes. We're still reporting on the Wright's first flight. Excellent. <laughs> Breaking news. Breaking yeah. news. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of memorable flights, uh, again, we had talked a little bit uh, before the show earlier today that you're one of the people who has uh, flown the RV one. Yes. Can you step yes. us through that experience? Yeah, we were. I was. I was uh, in Houston. I was doing a tech counselor visit in on a in a little private strip on the east side of Houston, grass strip. And the guy that I was there for said, "Hey, before we go look at my airplane, could you come come take a look at this thing that's in the back of this big hangar?" I went over there and I and I saw it and I said, "Is that what I think it is?" And he says, "Yeah, I think it is." And we looked and it said RV one by Dick built by Dick Van Grunsven, and. Uh, it was. Um, it was broken at the time. And uh, we, um, a long story, but, but we were able to acquire it, uh, uh, myself and some friends. We formed a group called the Friends of the RV-1. We restored it to flying condition with a great deal of help by many, many RV people and vendors. And then we, we, uh, I was the, the guy who flew it for the first time after that restoration. I was telling uh, Chris, that you know when you're when you you're pushing the throttle forward on this thing. First off, it's just an airplane, and you figure, you know, well, I hope it'll fly okay. And then you go, this is the only one of its kind, and it's destined for the museum in Oshkosh. If I bend it, my name is Mud. <laughs> the, dear God, please don't let me foul up. <laughs> you got it. Really you got it. That's right. Pilot That's right. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And, that, and that airplane, that airplane, we we didn't really realize that the left gear was bent a little bit. So as soon as I lifted the tail, it went left. Oh. You know, and, and those are just the things you find out when you start flying things. <laughs> right. But clearly a successful outcome. It was a successful outcome, and, and uh, we took it on the world tour, and, uh, and it ended up here in the, in the museum in Oshkosh. And it's, uh, boy, it's a, a beautiful centerpiece out there, the whole it, uh, RV, RV exhibit. Yep. Yep. 
so out of everything you've gotten to fly, uh, could you pick a favorite? You know, Chris asked me that, and, and I, I truly believe that probably my favorite all-around airplane is probably my RV3. It's just an incredible airplane, uh, uh, the performance and the handling and everything. Um, but there, it, 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 there are so many different airplanes that have so many different unique qualities, and each one of them is a star in its own unique way that uh, that uh, I really enjoy just about any just about anything that flies. There are some that have tried to kill me, and, and those get <laughs> at the bottom of the list. So uh, to to kind of expand on that, does for the RV three because you built that yourself, yeah. right? Does yep. that does that bring more joy to flying it because you built it and it's it's all yours? You know, and everything? after a while, you kind of that that doesn't doesn't seem to register anymore. I mean, I built that with my wife, so she built it too, and, and it wasn't like I, I drove every single rivet. Together, we drove lots of rivets. Um, so it's an interesting question. Uh, I think you have a deep satisfaction, but but more the airplane itself is what makes it neat. And the fact that what what's really fun is that every single switch, every single bit of the cockpit is exactly where I want it. Mm-hmm. Now, the uh, it's always interesting to me because... Um, the the only rule I think my wife would ever impose on me in terms of airplane ownership or club or anything like that is no single seaters. She, <laughs> she wants to be able to go. Right, right. Um, so I, I find that very flattering because it, to me that says that her social experience would be greatly yeah. improved <laughs> yes, with yes. me there flying the yes. airplane. Um, but uh, uh, was going to ask. So your motor glider is that a, is that going to be a two seater? Is that it's two seater? So it's yeah, two-seater. it'll be two seater. And it's a, and you're a tender, obviously a four seater. So for the most part, and she's building with you. For the most part, you two are are in this together. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Louise uh, didn't. Uh, she's a she's a geology professor. She uh, she got into flying uh, because she was afraid of flying, and she wanted yeah. to conquer that fear. So she got her pilot's license. And, uh, and mostly because seeing the ground from the air is an incredible way to do geology. So uh, I, be, I, I joke that I've been working on a master's degree in geology ever since I met her, <laughs> flying around the West. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, my wife jokes she's been working on a master's degree in patience uh, uh, since, yes. uh, well, since uh, we yeah. met. So. Of course, too. Yeah, <laughs> like something that seems to be, uh, seems to be going along yeah. and around. Is there one first flight? that stands out for you is there a single flight that oh golly you know even those are starting to blur together i i think the rv1 first flight so to speak was probably one of the big ones because there were so many people that had contributed that were involved and it was such an an, such an important piece of history um i've done a lot of first flights of home builds and things that i've built and and uh sometimes they have little bits and quirks and and oh cr- you know sorry that happened and kind of stuff but uh but uh i think the one that probably meant the most was the rv1 because because of the number of people that had been involved i know we're bouncing around a little bit between of course your your home building experience and your nasa experience. that's okay it all comes but together is there a is there a moment that really stands out for you in mission control is there one special <clears throat> moment you asked my 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 achilles heel question oh no because <laughs> The answer is after after 31 years of shuttle flying and 20 of those as flight director, it's really hard. You had we had so many experiences that were so great um, that it's really really hard to pick any one. Um, you know, we kind of had a, had a have have a feeling in mission control that um, if it's really exciting, you've done something wrong. <laughs> 
and 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 you know the other one goes is our unofficial motto, which is you know mission control, making the most exciting thing in the world as boring as possible. <laughs> and 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 uh, and that, but but there are missions that are really that were important, and one of which is a mission that that um, that most people have never heard of, the Space Radar Topography Mapper STS ninety nine. We we flew around for 10 days and kept the same attitude with to keep this antenna pointed at Earth, and we created a digital map of every square meter of the Earth between 65 north and 65 south topographically, and that is the basis for all topographic maps for the next 100 years. That's Google Earth. Wow. That's amazing. Right? That's Most people don't know that where anything came from, but... That's where that database came from. Right. I think people have an assumption that uh, Google is just launching satellites left and right. Right. No. And, and, and they certainly had that assumption at the beginning and, right. and saying, well, my, I just moved my car, Google. How come you haven't? Yeah, right. Uh, why right. isn't there a new, uh, you know, a new the, photo? The, this was a topographical map. So we actually f we completed a map that, that humans have been trying to do for as long as humans have been around. Right. Um, there were places that were still terra incognito. And so here we, we have this great map. And, and that was a shuttle mission that we did. You know, it, it's funny. I... Uh, spent most of my life out in the Pacific Northwest, out in the Seattle area, and and would often have thoughts of like flying for, and back and forth across the Cascade Mountains. Right. Uh, and you could say this, I'm certain you're part of the, the world yep. and lots of places, but uh, when you when you drive those routes, you get on the highway and you see, you see the mountains, but it's a two-hour trip and you feel like, okay, the, this mountain range is a sort of a, a manageable thing and I can, right. I can picture the whole thing. And you get up in an airplane and you get out over the middle of it and you know, I'll have these thoughts uh, flying in that area, when when all you can see in in all four directions are, are mountains. You know, there could be a city up there somewhere that nobody's ever <laughs> seen before. You know, you start flying around. I'm starting to believe in Bigfoot. Whatever else, yeah, right. it could be down there because you have no idea the vastness of it. So when you take that in microcosm, expand it to a global scale, that's absolutely it. It, fascinating. it, it is, and you know, you become a very good geographer spending 30 years in mission control because, right. you know, when the crew's asleep, you've got cameras and you, you're, a lot of times the payload bay is pointed to the earth and we just kind of watch the earth go by and, and you do very quickly learn the geography. The, the weird thing is I kind of had the opposite view of, of you when I, when I fly around uh, uh, out west is, you know, you're flying on a nice clear day and, you know, you can see 150 miles and you can see the coast over there and you can right. see Seattle up there and you can see the mountains and, all. you know, the world's a small place, but just lose an engine. And go down. <laughs> Even if you make a good landing, it's a really, really long walk to anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah I'm the guy who, who flies mountain passes over the highway. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. looking at the grassy one grassy median to the next and to the next. Yeah, yeah. After that as well, uh, that's uh, that's remarkable. You you did mention something, uh, you, mission control and cameras, and I was reminded of an earlier conversation. Um, if you could talk about a little bit about what it's like uh, at that job to be on camera all the time, or yeah, almost all almost, the time. Yeah, pretty much all the time. You know, we have cameras and we had cameras in mission control, and my wife would call it nanny cam. You know, yeah. we had NASA Select uh, at home on the cable channels, and she could watch what was going. And <laughs> but um, and uh, I had a red a red lunchbox that my mother had given me, and she was losing her vision. But she could still see colors, and sometimes she'd oh, watch wow. uh, watch NASA select. And as long as I had my red lunchbox on the on the console next to me, she knew I was on console, which was kind of <laughs> neat. But wow. there were times when we would, um, uh, I mean, the public affairs officer worked for me, of course, and I could say, "Well, uh, you know, Pierre, why don't you go outside for a little while?" Because we were having pizza delivered for the whole <laughs> team, and we didn't want to show whether we were getting it from Pizza Hut or 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 
one of the other competitors because then we'd be branding. <laughs> wow. I think you mentioned the same thing with Pepsi versus yeah, Coke. That's right. We, like we had that. a mission that's... where where one of the two, Pepsi or Coke, was developing a zero G Coke can or zero G can. There, I gave it away. It was a Coke, and Pepsi quickly. <laughs> developed their own and so they both flew on the same mission and the crew had to taste it and try them and we had to make sure we had no pepsi or coke products on the consoles because it would look like we were going to be favoring somebody (laughs) and the answer by the way if you want to know was when the when the crew came back and we debriefed and we said so which worked better and and story musgrave in his little voice said if you can't figure out how to refrigerate it don't send it at all A diplomatic ending to the <laughs> so, so we we went through the end of the Cold War. We made it through the end of the Cola Wars. Yes, yeah. right. You got it. Yeah, it's, yep. it's peace yep. in our time. Yep. At peace last. in our time. Yeah. See, uh, back to home building again. Uh, I think like a lot of a lot of things I read and just think about. It seems that the maybe the future is pointed towards electric aircraft. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are that way. Boy, I I'll tell you what. I would love to have an electric motor glider. You know, plug it in at night. Next morning, you take off, and you got ten thousand feet of climb to use any way you want it. Wouldn't that be just great? Just silent. I would love to have that. I I have seen. You know, we follow it. We haven't been covering a lot of electrical stuff in kit planes because there's nothing real practical out there as a kit yet, or as or as plans built. But the the developments are happening fast, and I I can easily see that that you could do a a a a two place trainer with a one hour mission uh in a very very short period of time and that would that would be a revolutionary kind of flying and it's certainly something we keep an eye on as well and i i I don't know that battery technology has quite hit moore's law level of uh, acceleration yet but i think we're we're, it seems like we're heading in that direction and you know every couple of years somebody says well you know this is this is sort of peak capacity uh and density versus weight and these sorts of things and then a couple years later it says no we figured out how to stretch it figured out how to stretch it and it's it's uh, it's fascinating to me because um, there's not maybe there's not been that many times in in human history if I can go big for just a minute where uh, unlike what we see in aviation where as soon as aviation really started going then everybody sort of you know folded their arms and said okay well when are we going to break the sound barrier when are we going to go right. Mach two when are we going to go into space when are we going to go to the moon and it's 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 fascinating to see something like aviation being one of those key technologies, computing and high tech being another one, uh, where you do have sort of the the layperson, you know, almost impatiently making predictions. Right. Whereas you go back a couple of centuries, and you know, you you didn't have nearly as much of that forward thinking. I don't think. I, I think that's true. Uh, we expect advances to come all the time. Right. You know, in the experimental world nowadays, we, we see those advances frequently in avionics. You know, we're still flying the same basic engines that we were flying a long time ago. Even even the modern engines are still basically the same. You right. know, the, the specific fuel consumption is about the same. Um, but uh, but we're seeing rapid advances in avionics. I mean, uh, uh, the, the addition of weather in the cockpit has has changed uh, cross country flying immeasurably. Uh, you just don't have to worry about weather anymore. You shouldn't be worrying about weather because you know what the weather is, where you're going, and right. where, what's behind you, and the like. You can still respect it, but <laughs> you, you have to respect it. But but you know it, it, and and you see that you don't see as many people trapped by bad weather, and you don't you don't see that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, the advance in technology is amazing, and, and I think electric is probably the next big unknown that's hard to, you know, we're not going to come up with a gas engine that, that cuts specific fuel, 
can feel, feel consumption in half. I just don't think that's going to happen. But by saying that, of course, that guarantees it will. <laughs> uh, but well, um, and the industry thanks you, and that would so. be great, wouldn't it? You know, so uh, yeah, I, I I would love to see electric, and I think we'll first see it. We're already seeing it. When I was at the uh, the Soaring Society of American convention about a month ago in Reno, um, there were numerous electric aircraft. That's definitely uh, definitely seems like it's something that's coming. Yep. Um, one final question just sort of popped into my head, and and that is, uh, where are you on the uh, the topic of Rotable aircraft or flying cars, if uh, if you prefer flying the cars, rotables. Well, I'm a bit of a traditional aeronautical engineer, and uh, and I believe that that of all the ones that I have seen so far, right, they're they're not very good airplanes, and they're even worse cars. <laughs> to, to put it so kind of bluntly, if you want the ultimate compromise, yeah, <laughs> and, with all aspects of your life, and and that's not to say that somebody can't come up with one in the future. Um, it is absolutely astounding what uh, weight savings can be achieved. The, the fundamental problem is weight, right? And what weight savings can be achieved with carbon fiber? I mean, take a look at a Cub Crafter's Cub. It's it's empty weight. It's it's the same. It looks like the same airplane as a Super Cub, and its empty weight is like 400 pounds less or 300 pounds less than a Super Cub. That's a lot of weight savings because of all the carbon in it. Won't say it, won't say it can't happen, but, but so far nobody's successfully come up with a decent rotable. Right. I, it's, I don't know what it is. It's something that's always fascinated me, and I think it's just the, the uh, you know, growing up on reruns of the Jetsons and everything else. Well, that's right. James Bond movies and things like this and just always been, been fascinated by it. Um, but uh, I, I have yet to see the thing that's great at both. That's that's right. So. That's right. Very there there are very very specific cases, you know. The Maverick was a, was a very interesting vehicle, right. an off road vehicle that you could literally lift off the road, which didn't make it a great aircraft, but it but it it did hop. Well, when you consider out. what the, yeah what the mission was, the, what mission, the mission was, was to hop. It was to drive right. in these off. Then oh, the bridge is washed out, and we've got to get over there yep. and you know yep. sort of so get the medicine to the if village. You, if you look at thing. a very specific mission, you can make that work. Right, and interesting to see too that uh, uh, Pal V has just announced theirs at the Geneva Motor Show. We've got Samson Motors coming uh, uh, coming to AirVenture this year, and. Uh, um, not to you know, I, I see lots and lots of things coming across my desk, as you probably do too, sure. Hal, you know, because you're a magazine editor. And, and, and it's kind of like when I was a flight director, and, and, and the flight director office uh, would get lots of letters from guys who had just invented perpetual motion <laughs> or, you know, the same type of thing. And, 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 if you were, and if you'd been nasty to the secretary, that letter was going to end up in your inbox <laughs> to answer, right? And, and you mentioned that inverted pyramid the other yeah, day yeah. because at the very, very top above your head after yeah, Congress and everything right. else is the American people, right? That, that's, government right. Employees, so, that's right. So every letter gets every answered, Every letter right? gets answered, that's right. And, and the same thing kind of happens now in the experimental airplane kit plane world that you get these great ideas from guys that have invented a new motor that takes no fuel and puts out infinite energy. <laughs> and he's wondering why you're not going to write an article about it. <laughs> we get our share of those. Uh, there's, uh, there's I, I can't give away too many details for the risk of insulting somebody, but there is somebody out there who has uh, uh, developed a space plane um, that's, uh, that's uh, I think, out of an old propane canister. He writes to you, too? 
<laughs> yes, we have the same friends. So uh, we're, you know, we're, we'll cautiously wait till the yes. successful uh, I will, well, first flight. I, I tell everybody, you know, when they send me this, this, this design for a brand new aircraft that they want publicity on, I say, well, how many have flown yet? Well, it flies great on the computer. Okay, I tell you what, I'm really excited for you. And as soon as you have a flying prototype, let us know. Here, here. Um, apropos of almost nothing, but I have to tell you, so what a geek I was as a kid. And I've totally grown out of that now, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Um, I actually had uh, I had a book. I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but it was just a collection of some of NASA's favorite letters. Uh-huh. And I hadn't thought about this book in years. And my, my hands down, it might even have been more of just NASA trivia and things, and there was a section of letters in it. Hands down, the one that I will never forget, my favorite one is some little kid wrote to NASA and said, Dear NASA, I am interested in the space program. Please send it to me. <laughs> and I think of that all the time. Every there you time go. Anytime I get a letter, and go. I just think yep. that's that's got to be the best one of all time. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, with that, uh, Paul, thanks again so much for taking the time to oh, join you're us. You're welcome, and thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, it's been uh, it's been our pleasure. Believe me, Connor. Thank you for sitting in, uh, and uh, and and not laying down sick beats uh, in the. Uh, in, so refreshing. It's, it is. It's very refreshing. <laughs> and at no point did Connor start a sentence with "I probably shouldn't I should say this." Say this but. Oh, a uh, big thanks as always to everyone out there listening. Uh, anybody who takes time to send us feedback, you can uh, email us uh, feedback at ea.org. One of these days we'll get a proper email address for the green dot, but right now feedback works just great. Uh, reviews on iTunes, Google play stitcher, any of those other, uh, Platforms of choice. I know we're out there on TuneIn. I believe we're also on iHeartRadio these days, which is terrific. The reviews and the feedback uh, are far more important uh, than uh, than we could ever say. So uh, they mean a lot to us. It's been wonderfully positive so far, but uh, but we need to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly. So please keep that stuff coming. And with that, thanks once again for listening, and we'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>